Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. We're glad to see you. Well, we're going to get started with worship. We're going to worship God. He's so good to us and he loves us. So if you are able, you're invited to stand and let's sing together. Jealous for me, loves like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions, eclipsed by glory. And I realize just how beautiful you are And how great your affections are for me And oh, how he loves us so Oh, how he loves us How he loves us so like a hurricane I am a tree
you may be seated. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. If this is your first time joining us for our worship service, we are so glad that you are here. On your way in, you should have received a bulletin. On there, you will find our Connect card. If you are looking to get connected with the church, we encourage you to fill out that Connect card so we can get to know you. If you have new contact information, please fill out that Connect card so we can keep you updated. On the other side, you will find our prayer card. If you have anyone in your life who is in need of prayer, please fill out the prayer card or visit our website at ljcc.org prayer. On your way out, you can drop these cards off in the foyer or the box mounted on the wall. Okay, here's a question, pop quiz. When uh, was the first time you ever said, I love you to someone? And back it up, when was the first time you remember somebody saying to you, I love you? Uh, typically, you were a little kid, probably, your mother, your grandmother, grandfather, your dad. Um, who in your life makes you feel the most loved? Uh, maybe they're not alive anymore. But just thinking of them puts a smile on your face. Who uh, in your life, hopefully there's been someone in your life, when you walk into a room, they light up. And they can't wait to see you, and everything is good because they're uh, in your life. Does this resonate with you at all? Um, then it gets complicated as you get older. Especially as you get a lot older, you're like you're really starting to feel like you understand what life's all about, about, I don't know, seventh, eighth grade. And then you're thinking, gee, do I love her? Uh, is she saying to him, I love you? Uh, probably not, but I really like you a lot. Um, and maybe you had those experiences in junior high, you know, um, you find out that this person really liked you, and, and you know it is official because one of her friends gave it to you in a note, and from that moment on, you were going together all day. You saw each other briefly in between classes. It was going so well, and then by the end of the day, you realize it's not going to work, and it was a breakup. And when she walked in the house, or you walked in the house, somebody said, wow, what happened to you? I will never love again. What happened? She doesn't like me. Who? Um, what was her name? Love. Uh, you know, um, uh, somebody said, I think it was Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? You know, um, Graham Parsons, the guy who invented country rock, basically, sang that song with Emmylou Harris, you know, love hurts. Um, love stinks. You know, uh, we all, most of the songs we hear are written about love. Some of the best po poems are written about love. Um, there was a song by a, a group, I won't even go back into it, but the song for, it was this top pop song for a long, long time, and every thought it was written about a woman, it was written for his dad. Because somebody did an interview, Rolling Stone or somebody did an interview with him and said, hey, so tell us about the song. He goes, it was written for my dad who died. I would just love to have another day with them. Love is a powerful thing, right? And, and the question we're asking today is, am I loved? We're going to explore that together. Let me give you a little background. Um, we're reflecting on seven primal questions integral to living the good life. Uh, Mike Foster has written a book called The Seven Primal Questions. We're not using that book as content, but that's a great reference point. If you want to explore these seven questions, pick up that book by Mike Foster. I think there's a workbook that comes with it. He's a very dynamic guy, lives here in San Diego. <clears throat> but as a jumping off point, I think that's such a great title, Seven Primal Questions. What are they? And let's look at those. And we're looking at them from the standpoint of what does this, the Bible say about these? And out of our understanding of what the Bible says about them, what is the theology that emerges? What is the way we understand what this means to us and in the real world around us? 
Uh, and so the questions are, am I safe? Am I secure? Am I loved? Am I wanted? Am I successful? Am I good enough? Uh, do I have a purpose? But the interesting thing to me uh, is that since, since all of us ask one of these questions more than the others, but we ask all these questions in one way or another, you might not ask them consciously, but I can guarantee you ask this question. If we just unpacked your, your life and said, let's look at the things in your life that would define you, and, and either big breakthroughs or big breakdowns, you know, big feelings that are positive, big feelings that are uh, not positive, you'd probably find behind it all, you're asking one of these questions, you're acting out one of these questions in your work life, in your love life, uh, in, in all of your life. Maybe it, 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 it drives your relationship with God. One of these questions. But the, the question I'm asking is, to whom are we asking these questions? Am I safe? Am I secure? Am I loved? Am I wanted? Am I successful? Am I good enough? Do I have a purpose? Uh, going back to you know, junior high, high school, you're asking your peers. When you're little, you'd ask your parents these questions uh, in one form or another. But at some point, a process that wonderful, scary, and disruptive time of differentiation in adolescence, all of a sudden your peers own that answer. And you live day to day from, um, you know, your, your heart is soaring to where your heart is breaking because you might not get the right answer to that question. A am I safe? Am I secure? Am I loved? Am I wanted? Am I successful? Am I good enough? Do I have a purpose? Whose affirmation are we seeking throughout life? It always cracks me up when I hear people talk about adolescence and peer pressure as if it's kind of contained in adolescence. Our whole life is defined by peer pressure. What do people think about me? It's not so much what I think about me or what you think about me, it's what I think you think about me. Because it's very complicated in a hurry. To whom are we asking these questions? Whose affirmation are we seeking? And here's the crazy thing as I reflect on my own life. In a world of imperfect people, we will get imperfect answers to these questions. If you ask this of a person who you don't realize it, but maybe they're jealous and envious of you or resentful toward you, what kind of answer will they give you if you're asking them one of these important questions? No empathy, no sympathy. Maybe they'll go, wow, I don't know, I don't think so. What? I don't think you're good enough. I don't think you're whatever the answer might be. We ask it of our careers. We ask it of our educational experiences. Um, it got so traumatic for so many high school kids, they couldn't have one valedictorian anymore. Now you've got a panel of valedictorians because they don't want anybody to feel left out because they work so hard. Um, it's not a critique, it's just an observation. In a world of imperfect people, we'll get imperfect answers to these questions. Am I safe, secure, loved, wanted, successful, good enough, or do I have a purpose? And in our, if our goal is getting to yes, whose yes carries enough authority to truly satisfy us? Uh, having talked to hundreds of people over the years who've gone through uh, divorce, uh, one of the haunting questions they ask is, how could somebody who knows me so well like me so little? How can somebody who knows me better than anybody else reject me, walk away from me, betray me? And if you've been through that experience, you know those feelings. You're thinking, how can somebody... I've, I've never been more known or more vulnerable or trusting in this and this can happen in a friendship, in a marriage. It can happen all over the place. Um, if our goal is getting to yes, whose yes carries enough authority to truly satisfy us? Who do we trust? Well, the good news, of course, is that God has the authority. God has the power. God has the full capacity uh, to save and satisfy us, to answer these questions. So this is where we come in. Uh, we, as in a, a, a body of Christ, a church, a community of people who believe in Jesus as a Savior and Lord of the world. We're saying <clears throat> these are inevitably going to be asked, uh, but maybe we ought to start with God and let Him define that question and the answer to the question. Because even the question is fairly amorphous. Safe compared to what? Secure to, compared to what? You might not feel safe right now. Um, I was running an errand yesterday, and the woman helping me had a very heavy accent, and I thought, oh my gosh, what little I know about Ukraine, she sounds Ukrainian. I said, where are you from? She said, Ukraine. And I just said, all of a sudden my errand didn't matter anymore. I just said, well, how are you doing? She said, I just got back from being with my family. I, I, I live in Kiev, and I went back to see my parents, and it's horrible. 
so I said, how did that feel? She goes, oh, kids are very safe. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? But she goes, oh, this is safer. But in her mind, you know, Kiev is safe because it would be a lot worse if you were in one of those out, outlying villages that are surrounded by mines and, and your enemy. So God has the authority, the power, and the full capacity to save us and to satisfy us. And at the same time, God uses people in our lives. So we can't get away from asking the question. Even if we ask God the question, we've then got to sort it out in terms of people. And people are imperfect, and we don't get the answers we want. And sometimes we do some weird things to each other. We, we ask each other dishonest questions. A dishonest question, you may already know this, a dishonest question is one that the answer has to be yes. Hey, would you go out with me? Uh, no. Why not? The second question is totally inappropriate. The first one answered it pretty much succinctly. And so a dishonest question is one that leads to hectoring and badgering and whining and moaning and complaining until you finally, maybe grudgingly, just to get rid of this person, say, sure, yeah, fine, whatever. So the first big idea of the morning is this. In Jesus, God answers these questions with a resounding, unequivocal yes. Am I safe? Yes, in me. Am I secure? Yes, in me. Am I loved? Yes, in me. And so it goes. Really, God is saying to us, as we look at his word, yes, this is what I created you to do and to feel. To feel safe, to feel secure, to feel loved. God created us to be safe, secure, loved, wanted, successful, good enough, and with a purpose. That's unequivocal in the scripture. Uh, in fact, Paul writes to the Corinthians, Jesus is God's unequivocal yes to all the promises he's made. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, if you don't know anything about Jesus, you think this is silly, naive, happy talk. This is like ostrich behavior. Just put your head in the sand. And I, though I don't know, do ostriches actually do this? I don't know. I've never seen an ostrich put their head in the sand. But it's, it's an apt uh, analogy of just avoiding, denying. But we actually believe this. We believe that in Jesus, God answers these questions with a resounding, unequivocal yes in me. But if this is how God created us, why do we still ask the questions? If God has all power, all authority, all capacity to satisfy us and to save us, to redeem us from this world where we're going, who am I? Why do we still ask the questions? Well, Genesis 3 tells us why. We're not going to take a deep dive into Genesis 3, but Genesis 1 and 2 tell us, uh, give us this picture of creation. Two complementary descriptions of, of of God creating all things. And the main thing we get out of it is that it's orderly, and in the midst of it, God says it's good. And that's why I can say with confidence, he created us to be safe, secure, loved, wanted, successful, good enough with a purpose. So what has gone horribly wrong if that's not how I actually experience life? And Genesis 3 tells us that our forebearers believed a lie that God is not enough. That's what we see in Genesis 3. They believed a lie that God is just not enough. He might be holding out on you. I think you can do better. Now we restlessly ask if we are enough. Having concluded that God is not enough and then realizing, oh no, that was not true. That was not right. Now we, we, we go through life asking, are we enough? Am I safe enough? Am I secure enough? Am I loved enough? Am I, et cetera. Do you resonate with this at all? Maybe the person sitting next to you does more than you. I don't know. Maybe everybody you know. Uh, or maybe you're thinking of people right now, oh, no, I don't know anybody who, who asks these questions. Well, that means you haven't really scratched beyond the surface of that relationship to know them well enough. By the way, you, you know you know somebody really well if, you, if, you can, if you've seen them laugh or seen them cry. If you know what makes them laugh or what makes them cry, you're making progress in, in getting to know somebody really well. Uh, likewise, if you can say, I've never had a conflict with my best friend, I would rethink the concept of best friend. Typically how boys become best friends is they see each other, they get in a fight, and then they become best friends. This is typically more the pattern, you know, and then if they're really good friends, they keep fighting throughout their whole relationship. And then if you ask them when they're old guys hanging out together, hey, how long have you guys been, how long have you guys been friends? Oh, we've been friends off and on for, I don't know, 50, 60 years. Now, I'm exaggerating, but the idea is that conflict is inevitable if you get to know people at any level of depth. 
And this is part of what these, these questions um, do to us, because we ask everybody close to us to answer these questions in the affirmative. And it wears people out. It's something they go, look, man, just give it a rest. You're, you're, they won't be saying about that question, because nobody ever talks about that question per se. It's like, hey, you're doing too much of this. You're pushing too hard. Why, why was that deal that was going to be the one of your whole life not enough now? Why was not that, uh, this girl, this guy, this, why, why is that not enough? Well, because this is what we find ourselves wrestling with. That sin deceives us and distracts us and denies us God's shalom. This deep sense of being in uh, a relationship with the living God creates this thing called shalom. We think of it as peace, kind of superficially, but it's the well-being that comes with a person who has been made in the image of God. So the fact is, of course, God does not want us to be defined by sin or to be held captive uh, to the devil's lies. Now, if you're new to coming to church, you might be thinking, oh, dear Lord, he's talking about devils and Satan as if they were real. Well, yeah, you have an enemy. It's not the person you don't like. It's Satan. There's an enemy of your soul. And not figuratively, poetically, but literally. They have, he has no power over you that you don't give him. But he is a threat to you and wants to destroy you. How do I know? Because Jesus himself said this. The devil was a people destroyer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is a harsh thing. It's, well, it's harsh because it's true, and it kind of, <laughs> it, it sounds like, wow, that's, that sounds sort of extreme. Well, if somebody was trying to kill somebody you know, wouldn't you think that was fairly extreme, that they were trying to kill them? This, it, it, this, this, the, the language, and you'll see it if you go in the NIV, New International Version, or almost any translation in John 8.44, it'll say, the devil was a murderer. Um, but he didn't murder Adam and Eve, did he? If you unpack the word... Uh, what you realize is that, yeah, it, it's, it's ultimately killing, but there's, uh, there's degrees of killing. You can kill somebody, it kind of it's like the zombie effect. They're dead but not acting like it. So Satan is a murderer, but this, this, this phrase can actually be, he's simply a person who is committed, a creature, a creation, a creature, committed to destroying people. He's a people destroyer. And as long as he can get you off focusing on God, that's enough to destroy you. You're still walking and talking, saying, look, I'm in control of my life. But the scripture defines us, describes us as being dead to God. Where does that come from? Well, because our, we've been killed, so to speak. We see this in Genesis 3. But at that moment, what did God say? I'm going to redeem. I'm going I'm to rectify this. And this is what's going on in scripture. And so um, Paul continues his theme. He says, for all, Paul the apostle, the one who hated Jesus and resisted Jesus and was persecuting people uh, who believed in Jesus, who then comes to know Jesus. Now Paul says, for all have sinned, everybody has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. We're not enough. We don't have what it takes. And all are justified then freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying, we were dead, but now we're alive. And and he actually uses that language in other places. Paul goes on, um, um, well, so let me, that, that's enough for that. But in this redemptive grace, we're asking these seven questions. If Jesus is the Lord and the Savior, Jesus who died to destroy the power of sin and death, rose again from the grave to give us life, what are the implications of that? If he wants us to, to receive God's shalom and walk in it, what does that look like? Well, we see a whole context. This is why we always talk about, when we talk about the New Testament, we want to always talk about the Old Testament. That's the context for the New. And if we divorce the Old Testament from the New Testament, we miss context. So, so back when Israel was at its lowest point, they had horribly disobeyed God, uh, one of many times, and, and the nation is in ruins, the people are, are broken and battered, and many of them are, are gone forever. And the writer of, of Lamentations is saying, oh, Lord, how did we get into this? Why did we do this? But then he says this. 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And it's these sorts of statements that we see in the Old Testament that together represent this, this emerging and development of God's promise to save his creation. That sin has its effect, but it's not the last word. Now, the reason we talk about sin to people who maybe you've already, who, who would say, I'm, but I'm saved in Jesus, why are we talking about sin? Because when, we, when you have those moments when now as a follower of Jesus, you're saying, does God really love me? If he loved me, wouldn't he be doing, is my life really making sense? I'm, I'm feeling restless. We have to come back and say, remember, our, our old nature wants to reassert itself and say, that Jesus stuff, it's not enough. So just as, you might say, well, if I was in that garden with Adam and Eve, I would have resisted Satan's lies. I would have pushed back, and we wouldn't be in this mess. And yet every day, we're still, in, the, in a sense, looking for the garden, wondering, is God enough? And his followers of Christ. It's not to, to bum you out to say you, you don't have what it takes in Jesus. It's simply saying, this is the, the battle that is ongoing that ultimately will be resolved when Jesus returns, there's a new heaven and a new earth. In the meantime, he is working in us and through us. But we are so easily distracted. And so Paul writes to the, the Ephesians, these people who live in Ephesus, the second most powerful city in the Roman Empire. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So you see, there's, there's something that's done. Jesus has risen from the grave. It's done. As he said at, at the last words, it is finished. You are in Christ. Nothing and no one can separate you from his love. For this is the truth, John writes in 1 John 5, 11 and 12. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's an assurance of our salvation. And yet we continue to work out the implications of what that looks like day by day. And that's why we're, we constantly come back to the Lord and say, okay, I've got to remember what you said and what you did and who I am in you. Because even now, with no power over me, Satan says, are you really sure? Is it really true? If those people only knew who you really are, then it wouldn't be so great. You go, no. I am absolutely clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And though I sin, it no longer defines me or adequately describes me. This is the redemptive process that even though we still ask these questions, am I safe, am I secure? We ask them from a different and better perspective. Ah, oh, that's right. God reigns. Jesus is Lord. And so John, writing in his first letter, says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. That's your identity. That's your description. You are his beloved. Um... A mom was telling me this week that on the playground, her son, uh, who's adopted, a kid, they're playing in, the, in, in, in preschool in the in kindergarten, the kid, another kid goes, that's not your real mom. And this kid, that can be a crushing moment for a kid who's adopted. But these parents have prepared that kid, and he goes, she's my real mom, and I don't want to play with you anymore. A teacher overheard it and told the mom, hey, here's what happened, I want to let you know. Your son handled it beautifully. He was so confident, he said, no, that's my mom. See, that's who we are in Christ. The devil, who's the father of lies, is not our father. God, who's the creator of truth and love and everything good, is our father. And yet we have these doubts, don't we? And the accuser, Satan, the deceiver, the, the, the person destroyer will say, he doesn't really, you don't really, it's not possible. Anybody with half a brain wouldn't believe this fairy tale, whatever. 
And so Paul goes on again to say to the Ephesians, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Sounds like a physics pop quiz. How long, how, gee, forever. And the, and the vectors, they never quite come together. They just keep, they get closer, it looks like over. But it's, you know, it's forever and ever and ever, amen. How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love. And that, that, this word know is not just to understand it as a concept, but to know it in your being. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. To know this love that surpasses knowledge. This is not irrational. What we're talking about is absolutely rational, but it goes beyond our capacity to understand it. So it's not irrational. It's supra-rational. It takes us to a place where we have to trust God's revelation. God says, I'm telling you something you wouldn't and couldn't otherwise know. This is what's true. And you're going, how do I wrap my brain around that? You are the Lord of the universe. You have all power. You can make anything happen when you want it to happen. And yet, you've given me agency. You've given me free will. All those confusing passages about predestination are so misunderstood and misapplied in our culture. We say, ah, oh, so it's like you're on one of those tracks where the, the ride takes you where it wants to go and you think you're driving. No, no. It's a God sees where everything could go. And God is moment by moment working in us so that we can say, I want to go where you're going. Your will be done, not mine. But I'm going to make choices. And so somebody says, I just don't know how to know the will of God. Make choices. Choose on any given day in any given situation. Make the choice that you think this represents most what would be honoring, glorifying to God, and blessing to people. And some, some days that means you're going to say a, a strong no to someone. And some days it's going to be, you're going to say a yes because I know this is going to cost me, but I believe I'm supposed to say yes. It's that moment when you say, I'm going to rearrange my, my budget so that I can give rather than just hoard. Yeah, but I might need it. Of course you might need it. But God will provide what you need. And if you feel you're, you know, the, 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 to honor and glorify Him is to give, to serve, to love, to forgive, then keep doing that. It's not foolishness. People might be misunderstanding your kindness for weakness, but you know it's the kindness of God in you that's making you do what you do, right? Live, you know, pace yourself according to Him, not the world around you. So this is what, what Paul's saying, that we can know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. So if Jesus is God's yes, the second point would be this. Uh, if, if I'm asking this question, am I loved? I'm essentially asking two questions. Who loves me? And do I feel loved? Again, I've had dozens and dozens and dozens of, of conversations with, with kids, teens, young adults, wrestling with uh, family of origin issues. And they'll say, they'll be talking, and I'll, say, and I'll just ask them, and I'll, you know, I'll refer them to counseling, because I don't do day-to-day do -day ongoing counseling. I do advising. I help people see what resources are available. I help them go in that direction. But I'll often ask, do, you, do your parents love you? And I get a grudging, well, yeah. Are you feeling loved? Well, no, that's a problem. I'm not feeling loved. Okay, but you know that they're trying to love you. Yeah, I'll give him credit for that. Okay. So this idea of being loved and feeling loved have to come together, right? If you know that somebody loves you abstractly and conceptually, it's not very satisfying. But it's those moments that you feel loved that make you feel most alive, right? That's why I asked that first question. When do you remember hearing the words, I love you? Who makes you feel, who made you or makes you feel most loved in this world? So love comes in two modes. We know this, words and deeds. Uh, maybe you've read the, the book on the love languages. Um, interesting, fascinating, but basically it comes down to words and deeds. You're going to love people with words. You're going to love people with deeds. Usually you, we, you love people with a combination. 
But some people feel more loved with words. Some people feel more loved with deeds. Right? That's the whole point of the love languages. Words of affirmation from one person just kind of go over their head. But a little gesture, their favorite cookie, you know, a, a special gift, a special experience, that's what makes them feel loved. They hear the words, but the, it's those deeds. That's true for all of us. But a lot of times people go, I just needed to hear thank you, or I appreciate you, or, you know, um, uh, what you mean, you told me in that card, that card made me cry, it was so powerful. I don't, I don't need another gift, but that card, oh my gosh, what a gift. So maybe you're sitting here thinking, yeah, that's me. I, I hear those words, it just fills me up. The gifts, I got too many things to, to, to take care of, I don't need one more thing. Experiences, been there, done that. Other people say, you know, the words, they, I don't know. I believe them, but I don't really feel them. But man, when you spend time with me, doing what I want to do, even though I know you don't really like it, that makes me feel super loved. So this is where the words and deeds uh, come into play. So we tend to feel loved when it's expressed in our love language. We tend to feel, feel when it, you know, that language of love that we resonate with is what we're getting. And then we tend to love in our language. So here's the double-edged sword, right? You want to be loved by people who are loving you according to your love language, but we tend to love out of what is, is love to us. It's like the, the, the little kid who gives the dad this most awesome T-shirt that just happens to fit the kid. Dad, I knew you'd love this. The dad's going, whoa, yeah. Hey, in the meantime, would you mind wearing this? Yeah, I'd love to wear that. You know, It's that kind of a thing. Right? We, we give out of our love language, and we get frustrated when we don't get love that way. So here's the question. If someone loves us with the wrong love language, does their love still count? <laughs> this might seem like the silliest thing. Who cares about love languages? Well, this is where it gets real. You don't love me. I don't feel loved. Nobody loves me. Nobody has ever loved me. Nobody will ever love me. Have I covered all the ground here? All efforts count. Don't be afraid to love. Don't be critical of people's efforts to love you. Don't spend your time going, oh, is that their love language or not? Forget it. Try to figure it out. But me, I'll just love them. Start with words. If words don't seem to get any resonance, do something else, right? But the idea is don't judge the love that is coming to you. You might not even be aware that you're being loved. You might receive love but not recognize it because you're assuming others will love like you do. The worst thing a, a couple can do to each other is have unexpressed expectations and to sit back and go, no, that's not it. No, that was not it. And, and this sounds so trite, such a cliche. It sounds like, no, that doesn't happen. The first anniversary gift, awesome from Home Depot. This has happened more times that I can tell you, uh, and people who are smart, you know, they know, they've heard this, they've laughed at, they've been at a couple of retreats, they've laughed here and this stuff, and then they do it. Why? Because it's so easy for us to love out of our own sense of what it feels like to be loved. You know, you've never said anything to me. Well, because I really feel loved when people are quiet. Can you imagine that? That happened? Wow. A belt stander. I just didn't know that was going to be the secret to my happiness in the next uh, years. So words will comfort, will confront, will correct. Hey, hold on a second. Wait, how could words be an act of love if they comfort, uh, confront, and correct? Wait, wait, we'll back up a little bit. Words that comfort, yes, that loving. What do you mean words that confront and correct? Ah, yeah, real love. A person who really loves you will say, hey, can we talk about this? The person who doesn't love you goes, I don't care. I'm not going to talk about that. It's too awkward. You might react negatively. I don't really care. Not worth the effort. Words of love, comfort, confront, correct, compliment, encourage, strengthen, and affirm us. Deeds expressed in special gifts, generosity, fun experiences, service, helpful support, lift us up. So soon people will love you using their love language until they know what yours is. You will resolve a lot of low-level frustration and conflict if you can come to that. And if after coming to that point, you still are not seeing or feeling love, you might want to have a strong conversation about, do you know how to give love? Or do I know how to receive love? 
Because if that waiter keeps coming to pour water in your glass and your glass is upside down, it's not going to be very satisfying. It'll be a big mess. It'll be silly. Why do you keep pouring water? I don't know. Why do you keep turning your glass upside down? So it behooves us to be students of love. Students of love. We tend to put love in that romantic category that we've inherited um, from Hollywood and before Hollywood from the Greeks, <laughs> you know? This idea that if it's, it's a feeling disconnected from everything else. Romantic love is the Western curse. And we love rom-coms. We love it when, when those conflicts and those, that emptiness or loneliness. There's a plaque in a restaurant in Manhattan from when Harry met Sally. There's a plaque, and people love to sit in the booth. And, and, they, they, you know, and, and if you remember the movie, um, why? Because, oh, that, they just bonded in that booth in that Manhattan cafe. Yeah, we love romantic love. The problem is um, a lot of love isn't romantic. She's done the laundry and shopping for 30 years. You don't think she loves you? He's, he's gone to work at a job that he'd rather not do, but it provides what you need to do what you love doing. I know a guy whose uh, dad went to really excellent schools, private, really expensive private schools in L.A., went to a great university, at university, um, became a follower of Jesus. And the father, this guy's grandfather, was so irate. He wrote the son out of his will. The guy was immensely wealthy because the son had come home and said from this elite college, I feel called to be a pastor. No son of mine is going to do that. You're going to waste your life, waste my money, you're done. It was not until many years later, <laughs> through having grandkids, that the grandfather, whose heart was melted, he saw what his son was doing, how he was blessing so many people. He saw these grandkids growing up with the love of that family, and, and they ch changed the grandfather's heart, reestablished a relationship, funded a family foundation that has blessed Tens of thousands of people. So love is not often romantic. It's usually really hard, but it's really worth it. So to be a student of love and to be a lifelong learner in giving and receiving love is worth the effort we make. The romantic stuff says, oh, it just happens. And if it doesn't happen, oh, well, you're not lucky. No, love is an investment. So, I mean... For many years, I, I had so much interaction with people um, who were single and just wanting to get married. And the big thing was, I just want to find the right person. And as you know, you, you can see where this is going. The simple question was, what are you doing to be the right person? Because if you meet the right person and you're not the right person, they're not going to recognize you as the person that you're looking for that, in them. They're going to say, gosh, I'm glad you like me, but I don't see, what have you been doing? So the idea is not to spiff yourself up and and look good. I mean, people in Newport Beach, it's a joke, but it's not a, uncritical. It's a, there's a reason when we kid about Newport Beach, and you go, I think we might have the same doctor, you know, kind of a thing. The, the amount of cosmetic surgery that happens in Beverly Hills and Newport Beach is shocking. And there's people, I'll be in Newport Beach, and people I haven't seen in a long time, I go, hey, you look like, you used to look, did you used to be, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, just, you know, judging anybody who has cosmetic surgery. I'm just saying, at some point, it's not the cosmetic alterations that matter. It's the inner development of you. You know this. Then why do we forget this so quickly? Well, I'm not forgetting it. Well, if you're frustrated and angry at somebody, then you haven't done the work in you to help you love them. Now, if you've done the work in you and you realize there's nothing I can do to make them love me or to build that relationship because some other stuff has to happen... But have you done the work? So love is something we invest ourselves in. Why? Because giving and receiving love is a skill we develop and refine over time. We can get better at it. Not, though, by saying, I know, I'll choose a better person next time. No. You need to be the person who understands the person you're, you're hoping to love you. Why do people keep picking the wrong person? Because they haven't done the work. And what they've done is they're offloading, outsourcing love. 
to something or someone that they think will provide it for them. And usually that person is gaming it because they've figured out what that person is looking for. I love the fact that Jesus could say, love one another as I have loved you. That's outrageous. Love one another as I have loved you. Either that's super arrogant. Oh, wait a minute, he's God. Yes, he loves us perfectly. That's why when Jesus would rebuke someone, it was an act of love. Now, we're not just saying, oh, that must have been love. No, we're saying that was an act of love. He's saying, do you see where you're going? Don't go there. He did this with his disciples. He did this with, with leaders. And at some points, he just didn't say anything. Love one another as I have loved you. Us, not so much. But life is a love story, right? Like all love stories, it's simple and it's complicated. This is what makes all those rom-coms so good. There's a conflict that has to be over, overcome. And the simple is this. God loves us and made us for love. We thrive on giving and receiving love. The complicated is this. Sin makes us distrustful, distrustful, defensive, selfish, and demanding, and, and possibly ungrateful. You keep demanding, demanding, demanding. I'm not happy. Your job is making me happy. You're not doing your job. So here's a love capacity challenge. Read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8. And substitute Jesus' name for the word love or it. I'll read it. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus is not rude. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. See, we've personalized it. We've taken it from an abstraction, love. An abstraction that we can distance ourselves from. Now it's getting scary close and personal. Now try this. I did this and it was just awful. Steve is patient. Steve is kind. I'd like to do a rebuttal on each of these. I don't have time though. But just, I'll read them all. Some apply, most don't, of course, but some might. Steve does not envy. Steve does not boast. Steve is not proud. Steve is not rude. Steve is not self-seeking. Steve is not easily angered. Steve keeps no record of wrongs. I have a computer for that. I don't need to keep a record. Steve does not delight in evil, but Steve rejoices with the truth. Steve always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Steve never fails. Okay, did it sound convincing? No, you're laughing. But put anybody's name there, we'd have the same response. Okay, I'm going to start here. <laughs> we'll go around the room. Every single one of us would go, oh, this is, oh my gosh. That's not convincing, that's convicting. That makes me feel awkward. It's like, oh, you're reading my mail to the world. Well, this is the reality. God says, I love you right where you are. I love who you are. I love you so much, I'm not going to let you stay there. I'm going to take you where you could never, never otherwise go. I'm going to teach you how to love. Now, some of you are so naturally loving, you feel like I'm set. I mean, on the sliding scale of love, I am so far beyond my peers. Yeah, but that is just not the, the love. If you put your name in this, it doesn't work anymore. Because you go, oh. Did you go, oh, when I read it with Jesus' name? Maybe not out of respect, but really, if you know Jesus, you go, how could I? When he, was con when he was confronted by his worst enemies, they said, we can find no sin in this man. And he had to come up with something to have an excuse to crucify him. So here's the good news, final point. God loves you and, and will teach you how to love. God loves you so much, he will teach you how to love. He doesn't rub your nose in it. He warms your heart with it. It's about spiritual transformation, not just independent self-improvement. But it is our effort in His power. Our effort in His power. It, that's about spiritual transformation. Not just an independent self-improvement program. That sounds contradictory maybe, but it's true. Our effort in His power.
Paul said it to the Colossians. He goes, I struggle with all his energy, which works so powerfully within me. I'm working on it, but I'm working out of what he's provided for me. So here's uh, what John said in the Gospel of John. I mean, Jesus said that John records in his Gospel. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. How did the Father love the Son? Unconditionally, 100%. Now remain, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Now, he loves you. Keeping his commands doesn't mean you don't get kicked out of his love. It means it's what's going to allow you to remain as in continue to experience it. He can love you, remember, and you might just reject it. He still is loving you. Remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete, fully developed. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these, there is no law. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. So let me summarize it this way. God's love moves us to confess our absolute need for His absolute grace. That's what we're going to do here in Holy Communion. God's love rescues us from sin and resets our concerns and commitments, reboots our perspective on life. We find ourselves asking a lot less, am I loved? And instead saying, because I'm loved, Lord, what do you want me to do with that? God's love produces relief, catharsis, cleansing, restoration, and we're filled and constantly filled with His love. God's love releases rivers of living water, producing that fruit of the Spirit. God's love gives us staying power and frees us to even sacrifice and suffer for love. Not out of codependency or dysfunction, but out of a genuine, transformational, unconditional embrace of the other. With boundaries appropriate, but loving nonetheless. God's love aligns our beliefs and behavior so that we think and speak and love like God. We start to think, well, Lord, what, do you, what would you do? God's love makes us vulnerable. We're willing to risk. Humble, confident, credible, and strong in His love and in ours. God's love calls us to a commitment to Christ that deepens and develops in a loving community. It's not a solo enterprise. Extroverts, introverts all need community. Maybe in different proportions and ratios, but we all need one another. So at the Last Supper, Jesus talked about love. He talked about love, and then he demonstrated it on a cross at Calvary. And so we remember it today as we ask him, am I loved? And hear his resounding yes. And it's called a celebration. Why? Because every day gets to be a celebration of, wow, Lord, you've, you've loved me. So on that night when he was betrayed, Jesus uh, having prayed over it, having talked a lot about love, took this bread, this unleavened matzah, and broke it, saying, having blessed it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. Remember my love for you. And in the same manner, having blessed it, he took this cup, this cup that was never, ever uh, uh, drunk by anybody at the table, because it was about the Messiah's return. And Jesus took that cup, and having blessed it, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you do this in remembrance of me. Now, this is new to you. Uh, you're welcome to receive it in Jesus' name. It's not an empty ritual ceremony that is superstitious. I better do it. No. If you believe in Jesus, you're welcome to the table. Uh, if you've been doing this for a long time, you might know it is the Eucharist, the thanks the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, all those are the, the same thing, all mentioned in the same chapter to describe what this is. As you come forward, 
uh, whenever you're ready to come forward, uh, you'll hear some words like, this is uh, Christ's body given for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. Take it, receive it. Uh, linger over it. Let the music waft over you. Let it fill your heart. And then offer yourselves to him. We are the living offering at this point in the service. You give your heart to him to be restored, renewed, strengthened, forgiven, encouraged, confirmed in what you're doing and how you're doing it. So Lord Jesus, I thank you, praise you uh, for the simple message of love, so profound in, in its implications. What would be otherwise just out of our reach, beyond our grasp, you have given it to us that we get to internalize it. To be nurtured by it to be sustained by it, to be strengthened, to be fully developed and complete through it. So I thank you and praise you for that. Receive us, Lord, as we come to you in your holy name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
This song's for you. It's for me, from him. If we could pray for you about anything uh, that concerns you or anybody you care about, uh, go right out around the corner to the front of the church there, the beautiful, lovely garden, a prayer garden. There'll be people who will have a prayer with you if you want that. It's a wonderful experience to have somebody pray with you, for you. Otherwise, get something to eat and drink. Take some time to meet some people and say hi before you go. If we can do anything to help you begin a journey with Jesus or continue it, let us know. We want to do that. So now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in his peace, go in his grace, live in his love one day at a time, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.